Life is full of hassles, way more than you might think, certainly more than when you think when you're growing up. So you've got to plan your future. You've got to do financial planning. You've got to get insurance. But to get peace of mind, you've got to make sure your family is legally protected. So where do you turn, and where have I turned in the past, for affordable legal protection you can trust? LegalZoom.com. That's right. Our friends at LegalZoom.com have been there for over 12 years, helping Americans get personalized wills, powers of attorney, living trust, real estate documents, and more. LegalZoom also helps start and maintain businesses with incorporation and LLC filings, trademarks and copyrights. Time-saving services were developed by a team of experienced attorneys, and LegalZoom takes care of you from start to finish. And then they follow up on you, too. You'll get emails throughout the year telling you your certain things are due and are you paying attention to things. It's quite a service. LegalZoom documents have been accepted by courts and government agencies in all 50 states. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but they can connect you to an attorney and provide self-help services at your specific direction. For even more savings, enter Drew, D-R-E-W, in the referral box at checkout. If you're a parent or entrepreneur, don't forget, don't wait any longer. Call or visit LegalZoom.com and protect what is yours. This is Corolla Digital. Welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Andrew Goldstein. His website, cvvd.org. He has a book, When Sex Hurts, A Woman's Guide to Banishing Sexual Pain. Dr. Goldstein is the director of the Center for, for Vulvovaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C. and New York City. Dr. Goldstein, welcome back. Well, thanks so much for having me. Listen, you have been one you – know, <laughs> podcasting has been an interesting experience for me, but you have been one of the – sort of shining moments for me in, in the whole process of finding people and interviewing people. And, and you and I met, I think, at the Grammy Awards or something. Is that is that the inauspicious the VMAs, be- the, the VMAs. VMAs. In the inauspicious beginning, he yeah. reached over a railing and goes, I should talk to you, and handed me his card. And I held it for like six months, I think, right, before I got back to you? Yep. I was like, ah, nah, he's never going to call. <laughs> and finally, finally, because I knew I could tell this would be something important for me. And I, and I want to revisit some of this again. I want to hear about the new research. I, I do a little program. I think a lot of people are aware of program that Adam and I used to do. Uh, I still do with Mike Catherwood called Loveline. And on that show, one of the most common throughout the last 30 years, one of the most common complaints, calls, concerns is pain with sex. Women have pain during intercourse or pain at the point of penetration or pain with ejaculation. They have all kinds of different sort of moments in which this becomes a painful process and then all kinds of reactions to it, many times aversive, many times shutting down, many times blaming other things like the relationship, like stress in their life, when in fact this is very much of a biological process. And I became increasingly convinced that it was the newer contraceptive agents, these powerful progesterones, that were causing a lot of the, the symptoms and lo and behold, Dr. Goldstein appeared and uh, confirmed that and has a lot of great research about that and other things. So what I'd like to do today, Dr. Goldstein, if you wouldn't mind, we'll take calls a little later on. But now, so to go through, we didn't, I don't think you and I have ever systematically been through your book. So to, you know, how, how it's constructed, how people should approach sexual pain, what they should be thinking of sort of, I, I suppose, I guess I imagine you break it down by whether it happens at the point of penetration, whether it happens with deep penetration, whether it happens intermittently, recurrently. How should people think about that problem? Well, um, and one of the things is that I did not know how to approach this problem. Um, There was this term that has been floated around called vulvodynia, which means vulvar pain of an unknown um, cause or unknown uh, etiology is what we say. Um, and basically people would say that it doesn't look bad, so we can't really figure out what the cause is, and uh, therefore we really don't know how to treat it. Um, but instead, I really took this uh, problem and did what we were taught in second-year medical school, which is to try to come up with testing and, uh, and what we call a differential diagnosis, so just small changes in the physical exam when I'm looking at a patient that can actually point us in the right direction um, as far as uh, what could be the cause of pain. And, uh, you know, it was just basically trial and error over about a 10-year period, but we've really been able to slowly pe- uh, pull, peel apart the different types of pain 
so that with a very good physical exam and possible history um, of you know when the pain began to actually figure out the causes of the pain. It's surprising, but if you walk in or talk to a gynecologist and you'll say, so what's the most common cause of sexual pain? They'll almost always say it's endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And endometriosis is when the lining of the uterus gets out into the, um, the pelvic cavity and causes scar tissue. I will tell you that I can go two, three, four months of seeing sexual pain patients and not seeing a single patient with endometriosis. And yet they... Now, let me ask you this. If you were to do a laparoscopy, which is a scope into the pelvic cavity, and looked around, what's the probability you'd see something that you would call endometriosis? Pretty high. So so, so, so people do the scope, then go, aha, that's it. It's endometriosis. But in, but in fact, it's not where the people are complaining of the pain. Right. Because most of these people are complaining upon pain upon penetration. And endometriosis, no matter how bad it is, will, be, will cause deep thrusting pain. Okay, so let, let, let's work backwards from that, and then we'll mm-hmm. get to the, the parts where you've had some breakthroughs. So if somebody's having penetration, excuse me, sex, and there's pain with deep penetration, the probabilities of what that pathology is causing the pain would be on the order of what? Endometriosis, ovarian endometriosis, cysts? Ovarian, ovarian cysts um, and uh, prior pelvic inflammatory disease. So prior gonorrhea or gonorrhea or chlamydia um, causing scar tissue um, in, in the pelvic cavity. So and and sometimes are, it's just uncomfortable. Sometimes people just have the uterus sort of flips around and it's uncomfortable for people. Is that, right. Is, Some people don't like cervical um, stimulation. contact. Cervical right. contact, people, right. If it, right. Some people – and that's usually just – you have to pick a position that does not hit the cervix as hard or dead on. Some women – like that though, because there are nerve inputs into that area that are sort of. My, I, oh, what's the one who wrote a book? Naomi Naomi Wolf wrote a book about this, where she was stunned to find out that there was all this biology and neurobiology down there, which I found almost comical. Um, but she was talking about how uh, cervical stimulation activates certain pleasure centers in the brain for some women. And and people do talk about cervical orgasm, though sort of being pretty uncommon or pretty rare. But in fact, those um, the nerve endings are a completely different type of nerve ending than the nerve endings that go to the skin, the clitoris, uh, the entrance of the vagina, and even the vagina. Um, these are um, uh, the same type of nerve endings that will go to um, the the bowel and things. So you can't localize it, but it will. It does travel up a different nerve pathway to the brain. So if somebody is having pain with deep penetration, the way to approach that would be immediately get a pelvic exam, right? See a doctor. Yes. And probably pelvic ultrasound. Would that be an important thing? Pelvic ultrasound. Make sure that they have um, tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Absolutely. Okay. So basic, basic cervical screens for infection, uh, inspection with the eye, and then maybe inspection with an ultrasound. And then, and then at that, if there's nothing that pops up, stop. Right? Do you have to? You have to go on to a laparoscopy. Um, typically not, especially if your story is not um, consistent with uh, endometriosis. Mid-cycle spotting, mid-cycle pain. Um, it has to be really associated with your menstrual cycle, changes throughout your menstrual cycle and the pain for, it to, for you have to have enough um, evidence to uh, warrant a laparoscopy. Now, let's say that somebody having sort of an, a, a pain that sounds like it's with deep penetration but it's a little unspecified, there is no vaginal, external vaginal pathology of any type. Would you agree that it sort of goes into the sexual abuse camp, trauma at that point? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are clearly um, women who've had a history of, of abuse are much more likely to have chronic um, uh, pelvic pain um, and to um, just have chronic discomfort. Um, and also it's very, it's typically vague. It could be also associated with irritable bowel syndrome or they may have been diagnosed with IBS. Um, and that these complaints are, are, are really hard to pinpoint. But what clearly, what percentage of those do you think get an endometriosis label before anybody starts talking about sexual trauma? God, eighty percent, hundred percent. It's like ten to one, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's very, it's very, very common. I mean, uh, unfortunately, the average practitioner is just so uncomfortable with the word sex and talking about sex. 
Um, is that weird? Isn't that, isn't that in their field? Isn't that, isn't that what they're they're talking about? Is the sexual organs of the female? Well, well, you know, and it's very interesting, Doctor Drew. But if, if you actually look at some recent studies at the sexual, the rates of sexual dysfunction among medical students, you'll find that it's actually very high. Oh, that's um, interesting. It's much higher than the general. And if I guess if you're going into a field and you're already dysfunctional yourself, then it's hard to feel comfortable about it. I can't, I don't know. It's just, uh, I can't explain why our colleagues are really scared about sex, but they seem, a lot of them seem to be. And, and they're scared about trauma, too, because they don't really, they may not have heard of it, they may not really understand it. They're, may, they're afraid the patients will be upset if they don't have a biological explanation, right? I mean, it seems like they, it's weird. They back away from it. What, what, are gynecologists being properly trained in that area now, or is that still a big empty set? It's it's no. Um, I finished my residency, you know, about uh, a little more than a decade ago at a really good place, and we had one forty-five minute long lecture and twenty thousand hours of training um, on sex. Wow! That's, and that's you know, and so I know some places are up to maybe a couple hours a year. Wow! Maybe ten hours in. Uh, Ten hours and twenty thousand hours of training, or fifteen thousand hours of training. Now, where do you refer? Um, where do gynecologists refer when there's a specific sexual issue? Do they get? Do they align themselves with sexual therapist or something? Well, they often align themselves with sexual therapist, which helps. But unfortunately, the the missing piece about that is that the sex therapists are really not. Um, well-trained, or, or they don't have a lack of understanding of the physiology. Yeah, the biology. Um, yeah. The biology. And, and so, um, and that's why <clears throat> there is our newer organizations, such as um, the organization I'm the, currently the president of, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Um, and that's ishwish.org. Uh, and um, and great thing about uh, Ishwish is that it really brings together psychologists and gynecologists and neurologists and sex therapists and physical therapists and and any ist you can think of a nutritionist um, and it, it, we all come together and treat these disorders and these pain problems um, as as women deserve, which is a complete person. We, we treat the, because even if it's a purely physiologic problem, for a pure medical problem, if you have pain for a long period of time, very frequently your muscles will get tight and tender. And also relationships will suffer, especially if you go to 8, 10, 12 different doctors and everyone says we can't find anything wrong or it's in your head. Let's talk about that part. I think you and I talked about this once before in the program, but the issue of muscular contraction and the pain associated with muscular spasm. How, how do we know whether it's uh, that or how do we know if it's just a secondary phenomenon and how should that be evaluated or treated? So th- actually there's one thing that we found, that, and this is one of the sort of um, big clues we have, that if you actually have pain upon penetration, but the pain is at only the back part of the entrance. So the, the, the entrance of the vagina is what we call the vulvar vestibule. Vestibule means entrance. It's supposed to be a warm and biting place. However, if uh, you have pain, it's certainly not that. But if there's only pain at the back part. Back means mean like the inferior part towards the anus. Is that what you mean by back right, part? Yeah. Right. So if you look at it, if you're looking at the area and it's a clock. Six o'clock. We would call that four o'clock, six o'clock, and eight o'clock. Okay. If there's only pain back there, but no pain up by near the urethra, by the, near the clitoris, then it's almost always just tight muscles. Huh. Then that's usually where, in my experience, that's where they sort of biopsy and diagnose uh, vulvodynia. Right. Well, the biopsy shows nothing, and they go, okay, this is vulvodynia. But no, no, they go, no, they'll go, oh, I see inflammation here. I see inflammation. Yeah. Well, of course, everyone has a little inflammation in their soft that's tissue. That's exactly right. I, actually, there's, right, the, that's pathologists I've never seen a vulvar biopsy didn't say some inflammation. So it means nothing. And you should never biopsy unless you know there's actually a real evidence of a skin disease there. You should biopsy if there's evidence of a skin disease. But a, just a, a nonspecific biopsy is going to show nothing. It's sort of, I always joke, it's like computer programming, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't know what it is going in, you're not going to get any good information coming out of do, it. Do you get a lot of pushback from your peers? It, it's weird when you say things that aren't sort of commonly known. People get, I, I, I get experience this where people go, who do you think you are? It's like, well, I'm just trying to... But right, we're just trying to help people. Um, I mean, it really is. It, it is frustrating, especially it's frustrating if there's sort of two schools of uh, 
two schools of thought, two camps here. And there seems to be in the vulvar pain um, world and sexual pain world, some people think that it's really a, a brain issue, that people are, you know, process pain incorrectly, and it really has nothing to do well, that's with trauma. the vulva and the vagina. That's trauma. That's, that's right. trauma. And then that's, right. that's right. the issue of the insular cortex. I mean, that's it's so funny. Everyone looks at the elephant, you know, who's got a big nail, who's got a big long trunk, and there, no one ever sees the elephant. The right. elephant is trauma, and and trauma, you know, we all look at parts of it. Uh, but that's a, that's a that's a specific thing we've already addressed, you and I. And uh, maybe they'll leave that to the trauma guys. Well, like what we need to do is we need it to we we need all of us to come together in a room, and you and you and you can't. Um, and you need sort of even if you're a doctor, you need like a virtual office, which means you need you really need to be very comfortable um, sending to a physical therapist. You yes. need to be very comfortable sending to a psychologist, um, uh, a psychiatrist if, if there's if there needs to be um, intervention as far as medications go. We have to feel very com- and nutritionist and um, and an acupuncturist if necessary. Um, and uh, and maybe a hypnotist, someone to really um, address all of the issues associated with these problems. Now that does not absolve the doctor right. of, of of figuring out what the underlying cause is, because there, as we had mentioned before, I think last on the last podcast, you know, ninety plus percent of the time there's a physical cause underlying a lot of this pain. Well, that that's the important point, and it get, and it gets sort of shunted off as vulvodynia, which doesn't really help things any, because that's a non-specific sort of garbage bag. And I don't mean right. that to be pejorative. It's just a garbage bag diagnosis. It's just someplace that things get sent. Same thing with pelvic pain and endometriosis. Same kind of thing. So let's go back to the muscular issue. So we have pain at the back of the vagina. What do people do if they get that problem? How do they get evaluated? What do they do to improve it? So luckily there are now 3,000 women's health physical therapists in the United States. Um, and that's a new phenomenon over the last 15 years. And um, women's health physical therapists are, are treating and, and helping so many women across America these days. And so that's where uh, you should go. And there are two ways to find um, women's health physical therapists. Actually, there are three ways, I should say. First way is that at ishwish.org, um, that is I-S-S, that's two S's, W-S-H, dot org, we have a provider list. But there are other two, two other organizations that have provider lists as well. One is the Women's Health Section of the American Physical Therapy Association. Hmm. And the way you can do that is the, the way to find a provider. It's womenshealthapta.org. It's one word. So womenshealthapta.org, and they have a find a provider um, site. Is all this stuff in your book, by the way? All these referrals? Um, it is or on my website. And your website um, is cvvd.org. The book is yes. When Sex Hurts. Uh, and we have a link to all these at drdrew.com if you're further interested. And, again, I'll announce these websites again at, at the end. And what kinds right. of th- – what, what what about these uh, kits that are out there to help with vaginismus, which we're kind of – are we talking about vaginismus or is that even called that anymore? Guess what? So um, as of May 14th, the word vaginismus is disappearing. Okay. What's it going to be um, called now? Um. <laughs> it's going to be almost um, chronic uh, pelvic and sexual pain disorder. So it's not going to be very good, but at least the term uh, vaginismus, which is something that we've been uh, very unhappy with for a long time, is finally disappearing. Wait, chronic um, sexual? Say, what's it called? Chronic sexual? Not exa- you know, it's, it's it's not been released by the uh, by what we call the DSM five. Yeah, it's going to be released on the on um, May fourteenth. And I don't know the exact name because there's actually an embargo on the information. But it's in the um, DSM-5, so it's in the psychiatric which, hand, handbook. Which, is, un, which huh. is unfortunate. We would love to actually get pain out of a psychiatric diagnosis book, but uh, at least there, that term, which can be very harmful, vaginismus, which implies that women just are too frigid to want to have sex, that they shut their vaginas off <laughs> that penetration. <laughs> they they um, close the vagina. That's funny. They shut the vagina. To that, that's what that, the term vaginismus implies. Um, in fact, at least that's disappearing. But women do have tight pelvic floor muscles, and that can cause pain um, upon penetration. And that's what uh, women's health physical therapists um, are really fabulous. And they sometimes work with dilators. 
Um, they which are do, which are like the kits that are available over the you know on the web. Which are available, um, but they do a lot of home stretching exercises. There's an amazing book called Heal Pelvic Pain. Um, Heal Pelvic Pain. It's written by uh, Amy Stein, and their exercises. I always recommend the exercises in chapters three and five of that book. Yeah, well, hang that, a second, it, Gary. Get that up on my website. Okay, Heal Pelvic Pain. Got it. And that is also a way to uh, do home relaxation exercises. There's one other foundation called the Herman Wallace Foundation. Herman Wallace Foundation, and they also have great pelvic floor physical therapists. Um, sometimes we use medications to help the physical therapists. Um, we sometimes use um, even occasionally Botox injections. Wow. But that's only. But that's usually in you know the minority of patients. We sometimes use, um, you'll be interested, Dr. Drew, to use diazepam, which are Valium um, vaginal or rectal suppositories, because diazepam is a great muscle relaxant. Does it have any systemic effects, or does it all stay local? About 20% is absorbed systemically. Interesting. But but you'll get about 80 80 times the concentration of that muscle relaxant into the pelvic floor muscles. So you can use a high concentration of the medicine, but get very little sedation, but you can really get a great deal of effect um, on uh, this area. A lot of women also, not only do they have pain with sex, they have um, constipation, rectal fissures, they'll have urinary symptoms, urinary frequency, the sensations of incomplete emptying, the sensations of hesitancy, they have to push to start the flow of urine. All of these um, are signs of pelvic floor dysfunction, including the pain upon penetration. Now, all those urethral symptoms can also be caused from some of the local estrogen and testosterone issues as well. I think we'll probably, yes. I'm going to get back to that. We, we're still working our way out, out of the vagina yet. We haven't gotten to the really cool stuff yet as far as I'm concerned. Right. So we're, we're, we're continuing to work our way to the external vestibula. Uh, before we, we continue our way out, though, it, it occurs to me that there's a, hu- a whole other overlay that you've got to concern yourself with, with here, not just the psychological, not just the interpersonal, which is, again, whole other, you know, other show. Simone Bien and I will do that one. But the cultural issues must be interesting here, too. Absolutely. People, uh, I mean, sex is, is uh, so, uh, so important to different cultures in so many different ways. Um, certainly, uh, many cultures don't want to talk about sex, or, or there, certainly there's no sex education among, in certain cultures. Um, and also, sometimes because of, there's no discussion, it becomes a very scary thing. And women are, you know, just something they're supposed to endure instead of enjoy. And so it depends on what your attitude going in as well. So that is absolutely essential. And any good physician, sex therapist, psychologist has to be aware of the the societal um, issues involved in, uh, in, in anyone coming in. Do you, find, do you find resistances or, or sort of insistences upon certain diagnostic formulations if people come I don't I'm just wondering from certain cultural backgrounds like people resist um, resist looking at it systematically or resist uh, understanding that it's a hormone or whatever I don't know I mean some well some cultures clearly are against um, uh, hormones and they don't want to either treat with hormones or or, or that they 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 think that that that's a problem um, uh, the other a problem is that uh, a lot of cultures feel that that this physical therapy is too invasive, mm. um, and so or embarrassing. We, we, yeah, embarrassing, um, and so women are resistant to, to go to to a physical uh, therapist for these because you know a lot of times the physical therapy is is internal, um, either um, in the vagina or through the rectum. So um, usually through the vagina, um, but again, some cultures just don't want to do uh, deal with this and 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 or individual women just really feel very uncomfortable dealing with it so um all right that, so that's the problem important to sort of pay attention to those sorts of things Absolutely. now let's talk about the vaginal lining uh, a common complaint that that I hear is oh these younger women will call in and say I'm allergic to my boyfriend's semen or my husband's semen because it burns every time he ejaculates that is 
virtually never allergy. <laughs> what right, is what is never allergy? What right. is that it, usually? Um, usually, it isn't. It, well, it's 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 often an allergy, but certainly not to the semen. Right. It's often an allergy to um, to the spermicide in condoms. It's often an allergy to the lubricants, and, and unfortunately, a lot of lubricants now are warming gels and have all of these different chemicals that cause allergy and irritant reactions. Well, well, but I think the important thing for people to say is it's not – the lining of the vagina is not necess- – it's if, if it is allergic, it's not the allergy you're feeling. It's the inflammation, the irritation. Absolutely. So, so, so my head breaks into three sort of categories. One is infection, important to rule out vaginal infections, vaginitis, that kind of thing, right? Yes, absolutely. Number two is irritant, like, like the, the warming gels or whatever. And then number three, and now we're starting to get the interesting stuff here, is local right, hormonal issues. So let's, let's, yes. let's start to get in there. Go ahead. So, so unfortunately, um, it is almost a birthright in America that as soon as a woman has one or two painful periods when she's 13, 14, or 15, um, that she goes on birth control pills. Mm. And she will go on birth control pills and stay on birth control pills often for 10, 12, 15 years. And these birth control pills that women are going on are really significantly different than the birth control pills of a generation or two, you know, two generations ago. For a lot of women, they're great um, because the hormone levels are very low, and therefore women will not have, frequently will not have PMS. They'll have very light periods. They won't have any weight gain. They won't have any bloating. They won't have any breast tenderness. Is it safer? Um, um, for those women, it actually is because um, the risk of uh, well, in some in some regards, some of the newer pills are not safer because they have an increased risk of blood clots. Right, and stroke um, too. On some of them, yeah. Um, but in general, it's they're probably quite safe. However, that is not for every woman. There are women, and we'll talk about it in a couple of seconds, I hope, um, who are starting to identify who, when they go on birth control pills, develop terrible problems. Um, and, and by now, the way, let's, let's – these terrible – you know, we're putting in quotations, terrible, they may be subtle. They may be slowly progressive. They may come on years after the pill was started. They may go on after the pill stops. And they're and they're quite protean. They include things like depression and lack of libido and, and vaginal irritation, right? Absolutely. And again, so I think that the people who are who have severe pain, severe problems, are probably um, you know one end of the spectrum. But we certainly recognize that that um, more than forty percent of women who start birth control pills within a year stop. Mm. And now it's not just because they there's the cost of the pill, and they often forget taking the pill, um, and there can be other you know type of side effects such as breakthrough bleeding that they don't like. But there are other side effects that people stop for stop for a variety of reasons: lack of libido, vaginal dryness, depression, and frank sexual pain. And if it's and, se- sexual pain, and, what's happening there? So what's happening is, so when any, every woman who takes a birth control pill has a lowering of hormones, 100% of women. And the reasons are, there are two reasons for this. The first one is the um, production of hormones by the ovaries are completely shut off. So every woman who takes birth control pills, their ovaries shut down. And so they become dependent on the hormones they're putting in their mouth. That's exactly correct. And as the ovaries shut down... Are they adequately replacing everything with what goes in their mouth, or are there things that are lost when the ovaries shut off? So they, uh, in the past, first of all, the amount of estrogen that they were replacing it with was adequate. Right now, I, in some of these pills, I don't believe it is. So there's no estrogen being produced, and the body has an estrogen deficit. Exactly. So yeah. every month that a woman takes a pill, there's an estrogen deficit. But there's even more of a deficit of the hormone testosterone. Now, let, let's kind of break that down because progesterone gets converted to testosterone, doesn't it? And progesterone is largely what they're taking. How come they don't get more testosterone? And progesterone itself has androgenic effects. How come they don't get that from what they're putting in their mouth? Well, because the newer progesterones, are, 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 they've picked them that are not likely to get converted to testosterone. 
Mm-hmm. So they're picking the ones. And more importantly, the newer progesterones that they're using cause the liver to make a protein that binds to whatever testosterone is in the body called sex hormone binding globulin. And so even so you're you're getting hit with a double whammy. The ovary is not making the testosterone and whatever little testosterone that is still left around and some of it's from the adrenal glands, whatever testosterone is there is getting bound to this protein that's going up often in uh ten ten times normal levels sometimes even 20 times normal levels. And so whatever, so what we call the amount of free testosterone that is available to the glands, that's available to the uh, vagina, the, the brain, vulva, to the brain, to the clitoris, is being reduced 70, 80, 90%. So the, the available testosterone, which is the circulating free in the blood, is tiny, and the testosterone that is available, which is very limited because the ovaries are shut down, is all bound to the sex hormone binding globulin. Yes. So it's a, it's a double whammy, because, and again, it's being, uh, especially with these newer pills. And so what are the effects? What do you see? So um, I think, that, first of all, I think the people who are, the subtly, they have lower desire. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and then um, if it's a little worse, they have no lubrication, mm-hmm. lack of lubrication. How many people do you talk to, Dr. Drew, who are 20, 25, 30, needing vaginal lubricants to have sex? A lot. And, and, they'll, and they'll usually – it's funny. The time course of it is weird too. They'll go, all of a sudden, I don't lubricate anymore. And I'll say, well, did you start a birth control pill? Well, I've been on it for a year and I, well, it still could be that pill, right? Oh, sure. It takes some time. Absolutely. It definitely takes some time and for them to really notice. Sometimes also the tissue gets thin um, and then they have a normal infection like a yeast infection or a bacterial infection. And once the, once the uh, infection's cleared, well, the tissue is now thin and inflamed and they never get back to feeling normal again. And so the thinning, how about if the normal lubrication with thinning? That could be very uncomfortable. Just It could feel like dryness. Absolutely. Yeah. So, they're, so they're actually, but also the, the lubricant itself is not, as viscous. It's not as slippery. And the reason is is that there are two different types of lubricant that the vagina and vulva make during arousal. The first lubricant is when um, what we call the serum comes out of the blood, um, and it's mainly water. So it's serous. It's what we call serous fluid. Right. And that has proteins in it like albumin, and that stuff um, can be slippery, but it's mainly just wet. Mm Mm-hmm. The real lubricant, the real stuff that's super slippery is called mucin. And mucin is made by the glands at the opening of the vestibule. And those glands, and that mucin is only made if there's adequate testosterone. And is that Skeen's and Bartholin's glands? Skeen's and Bartholin's glands as well as some minor vestibular glands. Just This is a splitting hairs here for our audience, but is there a difference? between Why do we have two different glands down there? Why Skeen's and Bartholin's? No, they're, they're, all, they're all the same type of gland, actually, but they are just different anatomic names. There are actually lots of small openings that are we call minor vestibular glands. So the whole vestibule has, has, uh, has glands in it. It's actually very interesting. These glands are um, the same glands that men have in their urethra. Well, now, wait a minute. That's what I wanted to get to. The, you, yeah. you, men have glands in their urethra, and then they have a prostate. Right, right. And which is different, and right. and, uh, the, and men the glands in the urethra for the for the male is sort of there to immune function as much as anything, right? Wouldn't you say keep it clean? Well, they do that, and but they also again they if a man gets aroused, we often call it pre-cum. Right, they leak. You actually look if we look at that stuff biochemically um, and send it to a biochemist, it's identical to the stuff that's coming out of the glands of the vestibule. So so the pre-cum is the same as the skein. It's the same that lubricates the vagina. Now right. when you get a female ejaculation, why do we have to speculate beyond that the, beyond a, a theory that the skeins and the Barthlins are all sort of contracting all at once? Is, does that ever happen as a female ejaculation? And I know you told me the other theory, which is that we'll talk about in a second, is that women have a prostate gland. Well, there, well, clearly the, 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 the skin glands are, are periurethral uh, glands that go all the way up along the urethra, and they have contractile tissue around it. 
Um, and so, and depending on how much of this contractile tissue and muscle tissue around it, they certainly can have an ejaculate. So, so, um, so it, the skeins of Bartholins can produce sort of an ejaculate material, and and then there's the prostate-like gland. Tell people about that. Well, the prostate-type gland is part of what the the complex what we call the G-spot. Um, and the G-spot is not one specific, like, ball of nerves, but, in fact, it's tissue that um, is of three different things. It's the, it is the, the tissue that's around the urethra in women, um, and it's tissue that's identical, if you biopsy it, to the prostate glands in um, men. You also have the, the crur, the legs of the clitoris, the clitor- everyone thinks the clitoris is this one little, you know, uh, raisin-shaped thing. But in fact, no, there are, there are legs that go down behind the labia major, the large lips. Um, and um, so it's the kind of pressing on all three of these areas that is what the G-spot is. And then the, the, the prevailing theory is that female ejaculation is primarily this prostate-like uh, material, so it's literally kind of a semen-like phenomenon that women create as well. Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's go back now to the story about the decreased desire, decreased lubrication, yes. vaginal thinning, sex hormone binding globulin going up, testosterone going down. So let's say you speculate, or a doctor or a patient speculates that oh, I've got this going on. It must be my birth control pill. Do you have to get off the pill, or can you take an estrogen cream, or can you take a testosterone cream? What's a patient to do? Unfortunately, so far, we have found that you sort of have to get off the pill. Um, We've not been able to treat women very well by having them keep on the pill. Even changing the pill doesn't really do it. Um, We we hoped it would, but we haven't had success. So hold on a second. So so changing the pill away from the progesterone towards estrogen doesn't do it by itself? It really doesn't. I think that they're they're so far down. They have such a, a bad pathology that, you know, it's... Uh, you're really just making small changes um, when you're changing from one pill to another at that point. So you've got to go off for how long? Typically, to get people completely better, they have to be off hormonal contraceptive for about six months Mm. at the same time as using an estrogen testosterone gel. And, And can they get that from their usual gynecologist, or do they have to get special consultation for that, or is it a... Is there available products out there that they can sort of... There are of... no available products currently. Um, they are, it has to be made at a, a compounding pharmacy. Um, we discuss uh, uh, what, what it is in um, that book, When Sex Hurts. Um, and again, they could get consultation by many physicians who are sexual medicine physicians know about this now. Um, and uh, again, one way to find them is ishwish.org. Um, Should patients bring your book in and say, you know, I'm reading this book, look at this, look at this page, I think this is something, can we they, try they this? May, uh, they may get pushed back by their regular OBGYN who are really not that familiar with these concepts. The, the concept of, if you talk to most OBGYNs, they, they are very familiar with estrogen and progesterone. They are very unfamiliar with testosterone and the importance of testosterone to the health of the vulva and vagina. What about switching to a progesterone-impregnated IUD? Are those equally That's as problematic? Fine. That's fine. No, what? they're fine. They so, work. So, the, so there, are two, there are two um, new IUDs that are available. Um, well, there's one that's been available for a while, the Marine IUD, which has progesterone, and there's a brand-new pill, uh, a brand new IUD called the Skyla. And Skyla, both of these are fine, and, most, and, and we do switch people very frequently to those. I have had people swear high. they get local vaginal effects from the progesterone in those, in those IUDs, by the way. They may get, but the, those effects are actually, that's when you were talking earlier about the, some progestins um, actually are, are, uh, are testosterone-like. And the, and the levonorgestrel that's in those two IUDs um, typically does not cause the same problems as the progesterone, uh, progestins in these new birth control pills. So we've actually had some decent success getting people off the pill, getting, using that IUD, and then using estrogen and testosterone. Often we'll try to have people for a few months not use any hormonal contraception um, if they can, uh, you know, if, we, if they can um, reliably use condoms. Now, in all honesty, it takes a few months for the sex to become not painful. So for a couple of months, we also encourage them to try not to have penetrative intercourse. Mm. 
Um, and I know that's hard, and a lot of people won't, you know, won't abide by that. We we just ask them, just give it a couple of months if they can, and that way they can get pregnant during that time. And, and while the majority of their pain gets treated, then we can get them um, on. Um, again, I love IUDs for these pa- this patient population. Now we move from. The pel- inside the pelvis, through the vagina to the outside. Now I want to we move up the lifespan. We've primarily been talking about younger women. Let's talk about women middle age and beyond. Uh, menopause, perimenopause causes all these same symptoms. Absolutely. And, and I would say the same bias applies here too, only it's more complicated because we've had the women's health study where progesterone and estrogen replacement has now been vilified and then no conversation or very limited conversation about testosterone. So what are those women to do? Um, again, uh, one of the things you can do is use the same uh, as women get older. Um, it's absolutely uh, every 45-year-old woman has, ha- has about uh, a two-thirds reduction in the amount of testosterone that she had when she was 22. Should, every it, be, woman. should it be replaced? Well, if she's having symptoms and Again, not every woman has symptoms, and this is what I think is so exciting about our research that we talked about a couple of days ago, Dr. Drew, which is that we're starting to identify which women are suffering from these symptoms of decreased testosterone, because not every woman is, and we're doing genetic tests to look at um, what we call the androgen receptor, which is where the testosterone binds to that androgen receptor to to get the effects of the testosterone. And some women have, um, for lack of a better word, efficient testosterone receptors, and some people have inefficient ones. And so if you have a very efficient one, you don't need much testosterone. If you take a pill and your free testosterone is decreased by 80%, if you still have that 20%, you still do fine. Because the, because the receptor is using it, binding it, efficient. Efficiently, and it gets exactly... Um, and uh, it only needs just a little bit. Um, I joke they call those the Prius receptors. <laughs> so you just need a little bit of gas to get these 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 babies humming. And you can However, now... there are other but there are other women out there who have the the Hummer uh, <laughs> receptors, um, and they need tons and tons and tons of testosterone. And maybe even if you drop their testosterone by thirty or forty percent, which is absolutely a natural part of aging they start having these symptoms. Well, my wife has a Hummer receptor, and uh, she was a fertility campaign uh, patient. And, you know, they overstimulated her ovaries, and she began having menopausal symptoms in her mid-30s and was told, honey, you'll be fine. And she had depression, a lack of libido and stuff. Got on on testosterone bioidentical pellets when she was 50 and was pissed because all her mood problems went away, her libido came, everything, she, she, a part of her thought, that she felt... She, I bet she thought clearer, too. I bet she had better. Absolutely. I bet she, Absolutely. I bet she felt like a completely different person. Sleep was like restored, the, mood was restored, right. and she yep. was angry because she also, this was kind of interesting, she felt like a part of herself that she had lost and forgotten about was restored yep. and was pissed. She was really angry. She's still angry. It's years now into it and having good effects. Uh, and I, I, that's why I like bringing this topic up because a lot of women just suffer out there with this and, and doctors are not trained to really – and we really don't know the long-term effects. So it's a hard thing to say you've got to go do this. But it is something that people suffer with without understanding their solutions or ways to evaluate it. And again, what, what is so exciting about uh, medicine and uh, what we're doing, I think, is we're now going to be able to do individualized medicine. Well, let's talk about the testing. Well, actually, let's do this. Let's take a break, and then you'll tell me about the testing and the research you're doing, and then we'll take a call, okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right, hold on. Hey, this is Adam. And Matt. And here's what's coming up on this week's CarCast. <laughs> Rutledge Wood here, uh, American Top Gear. I just saw what I believe is the last episode. Uh, you guys up in Iceland. Yeah, how about that? Great uh, episode. Really, by the way. That was so much fun. I love, watch every episode. Love the show. Tano's uh, a hack behind the wheel, though. What a yeah. joke. Here's how fast Jimmy Vassar is on this track. Uh, uh, Tanner couldn't couldn't get him. Right. Go back to, like, 19... 
91 and go, oh, there's this dude who just kicked the crap out of Tyson. I guess they got in an argument in a liquor store. Anyway, the guy beat the shit out of him. You'd be like, who is this what? dude? Yeah. I yeah. appreciate you saying it because I think sometimes people watch Top Gear on History and they think like, oh, Rutledge, you must suck as a driver. If you put anybody next to Tanner, I'm right. sorry. You're going to look like you've never seen a steering wheel in your life. Listen for free through iTunes, the free Adam Carolla app, or visit acecarcast.com. We are back. It's Dr. Drew Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Andrew Goldstein. He's the director of the Center for Vulvo-Vaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C. and New York City. He's a gynecologist, fellow of the International Society for the Study of Vulvo-Vaginal Diseases. His book is When Sex Hurts, A Woman's Guide to Banishing Sexual Pain. We've been working our way through the common manifestations and syndromes associated with sexual pain. His website is cvvd.org. He also is representing Ishwish, I-S-S-W-S-H.org. Um, a reminder that we discussed earlier in the podcast that if women are having pain at the entrance of the vagina, particularly in the backside, it's a muscular issue, and there are now armies of women's health physical therapists out there, and you can check out referrals at the American Physical Therapy Association's uh, women's health segment at that website, or go to womenshealthapta.org. Did I hit everything, Dr. Goldstein? Yeah, it's great. Okay. Absolutely. And now you were telling us about your research and how to determine whether somebody's got a Hummer or a Prius. Absolutely. So um, we have known for a while but in men that um, if they have a long gene for that androgen receptor, if the gene is long, then it, it doesn't work very well. And if the gene is short, it works really well. It's really easy to study in men, and it's really easy to study in men is because this gene happens to be on the X chromosome. And a very simple thing in genetics is women have two Xs and men only have one. So men only have one, of the, one copy of this gene, whereas women have two. So it's really easy to study in men. It's more difficult in women um, because women get one from their mom and one from their dad, mm. whereas men um, just have one copy. So it's been known in men for a while that um, if you have a long uh, one of these genes, you can have problems. In fact, if it's way too long, you have a disease called Kennedy syndrome. Um, and if it's very short, you do really well. Um, in fact, if it's really long, I mean, it's been linked to things as, as, as subtle as baldness, and, but it certainly has been linked to other medical problems, the length of this gene. Interesting. And so I was saying to myself, well, obviously not every woman who goes on the pill has these problems, but I certainly know that it gets better with testosterone, so it probably has to do with this gene. So we, we've taken women who developed pain while on the birth control pill and who we um, had them off, get off the pill, and we treated them, and they got completely better. And we're looking at their genes. And you would not be surprised, or I was not surprised to see that these, that these women have very long genes. Hmm. So they're just like the men who have the problems, that their genes are really long. So we're doing a study right now. Is that the Hummer or the um, Prius? So they have the Hummer. The Hummer, they yeah. The Hummer genes. They yeah. have the Hummer genes. And we're looking, uh, it's, it's funny, we're trying to, to um, expand this study, Dr. Drew, and we're, you know, I have lots of women who have problems, but I don't have that many patients who have no problems. So if there are any women who are out there who want, who want to help with this study, who take birth control pills but have no problems and who do really, really well, um, you need to be. A, we went. We were looking for a control group. Where, where should they? Control group. Where should they so, sign um, up? If, if, if they're taking, if they're, if they are taking, um, currently taking the following birth control pills: Yaz or Yasmin or Ocella. Because we're trying to to keep it to one type of birth control pill, and they have, and they take it, and they're doing really well, and have no pain whatsoever, and have really good libido. Um, if they email uh, my research assistant, and I'll give you the email, it's zoe, Z-O-E-B dot C-V-V-D at gmail.com. That's zoeb dot C-V-V-D at gmail.com. And if you're in Washington, D.C. and or New York City, all it is a quick little blood test will we'll get you in and out in 10 minutes. 
We'll pay you fifty bucks for your normal blood. Ooh, so, wow, fifty dollars! Yeah, Gary, it's something. It's only ten minutes. If you only had two X um, chromosomes, you'd be running over there. Seriously, yeah, that's big money. <laughs> no, it is big money. But, world. That is but, big money. Uh, but so we're just looking for normal people, and you can just email us at that if you're in Washington D.C. or New York City, if, and you're taking one of those types of pills and don't have problems. But we're also looking for women, and we're we're going to expand these studies, not just the women who have sexual pain, but we want to expand it to women who got terrible depression while on the pill. Mm. We want to look at this um, because we think that this is probably a big problem. That uh, I mean, how many people have you talked to, Dr. Rugo? I tried the pill, but, you know, within a month I felt crazy. Yeah, a lot. I, and, I wanted right. to jump. I felt suicidal. And, and how nice would it be to be able to do a blood test and say, oh, no, excuse me, we can't give you this pill because you're at risk for these sorts of problems. Therefore, either A, we're not going to use it at all, or B, we're going to use something entirely different. Yeah, so I think that uh, I think that we're, this is just uh, we're we're looking at the tip of the iceberg here about individualized medicine to try to figure out before women develop these side effects on medications that we actually can at least predict whether they're going to do well or not. It may not mean that they won't take the pill, um, or it may mean they'll take a pill that has you know that's less likely to cause these problems, has a higher level of estrogen or has a progesterone that's maybe older and it's less likely to cause these problems. Let us take a call. Oh, suddenly the phone lines are lighting up. Is that what I'm seeing? No. Here is a call for Dr. Goldstein and myself. This is from uh, Monica. Monica, what do you got for us? Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call, Dr. Drew and Dr. Goldstein. Um, okay, so I am on the NuvaRing. I've been on it since the end of November and just recently, starting in February, um, every time I have intercourse, which has only been four times since this started happening, um, I've been having bleeding um, during and after intercourse. And it'll go away um, like a day later, but I don't know. Is this something to worry about, and will it go away? I don't know if it's Let, let's, Yeah, I get it. It's a common thing, Monica. And Dr. Goldstein, let's talk about, let's talk about her question first and then more generally about uh, bleeding with coitus. Right. So um, the bleeding could be one of uh, several different things. It could be from trauma when the penis, the penis hits the cervix. And, and that can happen um, to anybody. That can be just that normal. That can happen to anybody. Yeah. Okay. But you're more likely to have uh, happen when you're on birth control pills because the, the cells that are usually in the canal of the cervix, which are less responsive, uh, resistant to trauma can sometimes migrate to the outer part of the cervix when you're on birth control pills. And the NuvaRing has a very, you call it ectropion, is that what it is? Uh-huh. Yeah. The NuvaRing has a very powerful estrogen in it, so I imagine it'd be even more likely to cause this kind of thing. It, okay. it can, plus you now have an object in the vagina that can be rubbing against the cervix um, Anything she should, should she, when When should this be evaluated and when should it be just dismissed as, oh, it's the NuvaRing? It has to be evaluated because the oh, the other concern is with bleeding after intercourse is it could be a sign of um, precancerous changes on the cervix. So, so she has to make sure that she's had a normal pap smear and a test for HPV, human papillomavirus, recently to make sure that it's not a sign of precancer. Most likely is not. Again, Monica, don't get nervous because it's most very, likely yes, not This is very common, Monica, very, very common. Okay, it's really really inconvenient, and it's just, like, it's gross. And, you know, it it wasn't (laughs) happening (laughs) (laughs) when I first started it, and it happened in February. So is there, like, I I, I was just confused because, you know, I was fine for the first couple of months, and then, you know, something happened. It take a while to to change, especially from these hormonal contractions, Monica, and it could take three, four months to develop this ectropian. So when you go to your gynecologist, ask them specifically to look for that. Sometimes they don't look for it or they don't think about it. About ectropion. Well, it really – but you know what? Whether he or she sees the ectropion or not, the important thing is to rule out precancerous things, make sure the HPV is not there, talk about the vaccine. She's 24. Take the damn vaccine, Monica, if you've not. What about birth control pills uh, causing this, not just the NuvaRing? Also happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it it does, yes. It's very common. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is it ever from uterine lining thickening or instability of uterine lining? Um, generally, it's not then associated with intercourse. Mm. Um, it, um, 
Uh, it can be, but generally it's not just um, after intercourse. I mean, you could have breakthrough bleeding on any hormonal contraceptive, but then it's not just intercourse related. Hey, give me some insight on something. Why is the HPV vaccine only being pushed for certain age groups? There's a lot of sexually active single older adults, middle-aged adults that, in my opinion, should be getting that vaccine. Why are we limiting it to 26, 28? Uh, well, uh, the initial it was only approved FDA to the 26 because um, uh, the two issues. There was the concern um, that uh, as you get older, you do not mount as strong an immune response. Right. Um, that's so, number one. Also, by the time you um, uh, are of that age, that you most people have been exposed to the HPV, um, and uh, because if you've had three sexual partners. 81% of women have been exposed. So but, but exposed to HPV, but not necessarily exposed to the six subtypes that cause cancer, right? Right. The two most, the 16 and 18, um, which, are the, which are the two that cause, most likely cause cancer, unfortunately are, though, the most common cause of, most common HPV strains. Um, they're not the ones that cause worse, and it doesn't mean that you have been exposed to them, but this is the reason, at least initially, um, that it was, so I don't, I, I don't know if it's been approved for great, or after 20 It's not. I, I just look at it as it, it was just a monetary issue. It cost $750 million to get a drug to market, uh, you know, get through the FDA, and they just chose an age group, and the other age group was just closed out. And in order to get it to an older person, physicians have to use it off-label, Right. Not only off label, but often then the insurance won't cover it, even if it will. Oh, cover the insurance it. will not cover it for sure. For sure, they do not. Right. But but uh, do, do you think that? Uh, I see. I think older people should be getting it. Are you of that opinion or no? Again, it really depends. I think on the individual sexual history. Yeah. I think that if a woman has had ten or twelve sexual partners, um, especially without you know certainly not protected over a lifetime of ten or twelve, I think that the chances of her being exposed to have been exposed to 16 or 18 are so high that it's probably of, you know, the... And so uh, what, and so you have 16 or 18 and you you fought it off or you're just with it yeah, and your you, cancer no, risk continues? No, you fought it off. I see, I see. You fought it off. See, I, I mean, thought 16 most, or 18 was persistent. I thought it just stayed no matter what. Oh, no, no, no. Um, 90% of women who are exposed get rid of it. Um, I see. It's only the people who have persistent infection are the ones who are at risk. And and how do you know? And it's, uh, your pap smear tells you that, I suppose. Well, the pap smear with HPV testing, they've just changed the recommendations so that if you get a, a combined pap smear and HPV test mm-hmm. and, they are, and they are both negative, then you actually can go five years before being tested again. Right. And then we've got the issue of anal pathology, head and neck pathology with 16 and 18 ounces. Absolutely. Grave concerns. But so if you have, well, it's extraordinarily important that if you have cervical pathology, if you've had abnormal pap smears of a high grade, that someone actually takes a look around the anus. And, and what about the, and, and, if, and by the way, head and neck, don't drink and don't smoke because that's what seems to activate all that. And oh. the dentists now are actually screening for, um, you know, pathology in the mouth. Interesting. When during the, during normal dental cleanings and things, they should really look at your gums and to look and see if they see any, or if you see any white, you know, plaques. things that look plaques that that stay around. Yeah. Please, please, or especially if they bleed at all, you know, when you're, you know, uh, you know, when you're when you're brushing your teeth, please don't ignore them in your mouth. And if you have an abnormal. Sp- pap, and if you smoke and drink or you had multiple sexual partners, you were at risk for this stuff. Dr. Goldstein, there we go. That does it. I think we've walked our way through uh, really important stuff, and I am so appreciative of you coming back and uh, readdressing the stuff with us, and keep doing the great research. We'll we'll update the audience periodically. Anything you want to say in closing? No, but I, again, if anyone out there, uh, well, first of all, don't ignore it. If you if you have sexual pain, just because they're because your doctor can't figure it out, there are people out there who can figure it out. Don't suffer in silence. And let me give you the website if you want to contact Dr. Goldstein. It is cvvd.org. The book is When Sex Hurts: A Woman's Guide to Banishing Sexual Pain. It will be available on our website. Dr. Goldstein, a reminder, is the director of the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C. and New York City. Um, let me kind of review really quickly here some of the websites which we'll have uh, hopefully posted, Gary, on our site at drdrew.com. 
Uh, the Heal Pelvic Pain is a book by Amy Stein that we hopefully will put up as well if you have uh, interest in the physical therapy, physical rehabilitation of the muscular issues of pelvic pain. Ishwish.org is the website, uh, ISSWSH.org is a professional society that is getting deeply into these issues. And if, again, physical therapy is important for your recovery, women's health, APTA.org. Herman Wallace Foundation is another resource. Anything I'm leaving out here, Dr. Goldstein? No. Again, if you have, if any women, again, who want to help participate in our research um, and they're taking Yaz, Yasmin, or Sela, and they don't have any pain or any uh, or low desire, and they're, they live in Washington, D.C., or New York City, just email zoeb.cvvd at gmail.com. And Zoe is Z-O-E, not Z-O-E-Y? No, no Y. Z-O-E-B at cvv.org. Uh, dot, dot cvd. Dot cvvd.org. And a reminder that, uh, oh, this will all be on com. And a reminder, com. please click through the Amazon banner. It does not cost a thing, but keeps Mr. Corolla, keeps me in the driver's seat here. And Corolla doesn't kick me out, which is great. Um, do we need to give a reminder about Redondo Beach here? Um, no. Okay, that uh, does it for this uh, podcast. We'll see you again next time. Thank you, Dr. Colstein. Thank you so much for having me. All right, take care. This is Corolla Digital.